Good morning, everybody. Try again. Good morning. My name is Jenny Seibel. I am the associate priest here at Emmanuel, um, and it's really good to be in church with you this morning. So welcome. Uh, really always thrilled to um, be talking about the Bible, but as you all know, uh, particularly in this gospel, I'm really excited to be in it. So um, one of my most important stories in the whole book we're reading this morning. So let's read together. We're still in Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 21. <clears throat> they, who's they? Jesus and the disciples, particulars. Anybody know which disciples? We're having a teaching moment as we're reading. It's embodied, right? Yeah. Andrew, Peter, John, and James. You're just going to teach the class today? Yeah. So Jesus has four disciples with him already. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, he entered the synagogue and taught. They were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. What's an unclean spirit? A demon, yeah. And he cried out. The unclean spirit cries out. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying with a loud voice, came out of him. They were all amazed, and they kept on asking one another, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. At once his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, you know that I have a lot to say today. And you also know what should be said and what needs to be heard. So I ask for less of me and more of you, Lord. More of your spirit in this room, in myself, and in these people. I pray, Jesus, you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, would you give us soft hearts, inclined towards your word and your spirit, your movements, towards the person of Jesus. We thank you for all your words and all of your work, Lord, and we pray all these things in your name. Amen. <clears throat> Amen. So as we've mentioned, we'll be studying the gospel of Mark in the seasons of ordinary time this year, and we are in the sort of first moment of ordinary time now, and we're going to be in it again in the summer and through the fall. So we'll kind of start now, and then we'll go somewhere else during Lent and Easter, and then we'll jump back into Mark later on in the year. Uh, but because of that, if you have heard me talk about it all, you know that I love the gospel of Mark. Also, many of you are in the Mark class. We have more people in that class than we've ever had in any other class in the history of this church. So lots of you are probably like, move on, Jenny, let's go on to the next thing. But for those of you who don't know, uh, this gospel is very likely the very first ever written of the four gospels. And it is also the shortest. And as someone remarked to me at the Mark class this week, he, he reads Greek and he came up to me and he just said, Kai! which in Greek means and, because this gospel is 
full of that word over and over and over again. Mark is like, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. And if you've ever talked to a child who's telling you a cool story, that's what it sounds like. It's just like one, you know, 16 chapters of a run-on sentence basically is what Mark is because he's so excited to tell you and each part is just as good as the last and builds on itself. And then the very end is this like giant exclamation mark. That's how we read this book. That's what it's supposed to feel like to us as we read it. Uh, Mark is also a gospel that hinges on Jesus's encounters with demon-possessed people. Now, sure, we see encounters with demon-possessed people in other gospels, but they don't sort of like the gospel moves and hinges on these moments in Mark. And it's just a little bit different in the other gospels. So I think Mark, as a person who knew Jesus, these for him were like, huge moments of what it meant to be Jesus's friend and to know him and his work in the world. These moments were so important for Mark that they're sort of like what pushes along his story of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. When John the Baptist in the very beginning of Mark's gospel tells us, uh, he baptizes with water, but one who is coming is more powerful than I, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He's telling us, uh, John the Baptist says, he's like, hey, I'm going to do this thing, but it's kind of, for me, it's a merely human thing. But someone's coming who is spirit, and he's going to take this physical, merely human thing, and he's going to make it a spiritual thing. And he's talking about Jesus. The Gospel of Mark, for me, I think, uh, for the world, and I think for this church as well, is an invitation into the charismatic stream. So Anglicanism, if you know uh, what, what it is, that, who we are, what Anglicanism means, um, for a lot of us, the way that we think about it, the most helpful way of thinking about it, is that it is, it is a like radical middle, as we say, of three streams, three ways of being Christian. The first is uh, liturgical, a commitment to tradition and order in worship. It's like how we do the, the, the liturgy around the Eucharist and the way we say the, uh, the prayers at the beginning and those kinds of things. Uh, that's liturgical. It's the part of, part of us that makes you think, uh, walk in the first day and, and say, are these people Catholic? That's liturgical. Um, second is evangelical. And I don't mean that in like the political sense. I mean it in like the traditional sense, like we're Jesus people, um, and we have a commitment to Orthodox belief and to the Bible and to the spreading of the gospel. It's the part of our services or life with us that makes you think like, wait, are they Baptist? And lastly is the charismatic stream, which is a commitment to belief in the power of the Holy Spirit and the Spirit's work in our lives and in the world. And you may not experience that that much with us when you're with us on a Sunday. And that's why I think in particular for this church, there's an invitation this year as we study the gospel of Mark, to sort of think about what it means to live into, more into this stream, this gift that's been given to us as Anglicans. What does it mean to live into the charismatic stream? When I think about the Spirit's power and work increasing in the human life, um, you know, we've all had experience, lots of us have had experience, not all of us, lots of us have had experiences with people who might call themselves charismatic. And they are like either wonderful and amazing and life-changing, or they're like, I'm reading as far away from this thing as I possibly can. I feel like those have been my experiences because they can feel scary. They can feel overwhelming. Um, and so for me, as a person who has been both like changed for the good and for the worse by this stream, which that's true of all the streams, by the way, not just this one, um, 
how do I live into it a way, in a way that God is calling me into? I've done a lot of thinking about that since college, which is when like Jenny entered the charismatic stream. <laughs> how do I do this in a way that is like spirit-filled, but also like lives a life like Jesus did? Um, and I think about this scripture um, from John that John the Baptist tells us. He says, he must increase, I must decrease. So when I think about what a life filled with the Holy Spirit is, when I think about what it means to like wade in the charismatic waters, that's what it looks like, is that more of God would increase in my life and less of me would increase in my life. I would decrease. Letting go, letting me go, really, is what a spirit-empowered life looks like. It means letting God in and letting God move through me. It will still look and sound like me because I'm me and God made me, right? But it allows God to move through all the barriers that I would put up because of self-consciousness, all the barriers I'd put up because of what I've learned of how to be in the world. And this looks like different ways for us. It may look like um, letting go during worship, you know, and like more actively using your body. Some of you are like, I'm not bringing in a banner no matter what you say, Jenny. Not gonna wave a banner in this church. That's okay. But like putting your hands out during worship or even putting your arms up during worship, like offering yourself to the Lord, engaging in a full-bodied, embodied way. Um, those are sort of the things that we're called to uh, when the spirit is moving through us. It makes us let go of ourselves and move into kind of the things of God. It may mean praying out loud during the prayers of the people forgetting that you have people around you and that that's scary and that someone might hear your words, you know, <laughs> letting go of that self-consciousness. It may mean hearing the voice of God speak in your life and sharing that with someone else. There was uh, a time when uh, a friend of ours named Patrick Boatwright came to preach at this church. And if you remember him, he's the one who um, did like Lectio with us and then had us share with our neighbors, which is not normally what we do at this church. And uh, someone told me after that, that the person they were turned next to to pray with and for during that service, uh, one of them said, I never do this. But since I sat next to you, I've been feeling God wanting to, me to tell you something. And she told her. And it was a life-changing experience for both of them. And I think there are many people in this church, this is the thing I felt from the Holy Spirit this week more than anything else. There are people in this church that the Holy Spirit wants to speak through. And we have been guarding ourselves because we're grown-ups. And we've learned how to be in the world. And it's not a letting go sort of thing. It's a holding on to sort of thing. But I think this is a moment for our church where we can begin to let the spirit in and flow out of us. What does that look like in you? And I don't mean like saying to the person next to you, God told me you're going to have four children. <laughs> like, don't be predicting anybody's future. 99% of the time the whole, when the Holy Spirit speaks through us and wants to say something to someone else around us, it's encouragement. It's fruitful. It's life-giving. So that's my word to you. All these things that we hold on to, God wants to move through. Less of me, less of my self-consciousness, my self-doubt, my self-expression even, but more of God. More of God-consciousness, God-belief, God-expression. In this text, we see Jesus' first big moment in ministry. I went like 20 minutes over at the last service, so I'm trying to be very careful. <laughs> if you see me struggling, I'm trying to decide what the Spirit wants me to say. <laughs> in this text, we have Jesus' first big moment in ministry. 
It's the Sabbath, so of course they're in the synagogue, right, because they're good Jews. And Jesus is a rabbi and has been invited to read uh, from the scroll and to teach. And the text tells us that the people who are listening are astounded. In the word, another translation, I think a better translation of that would be shocked. Uh, They're shocked by what he's saying because he's so full of authority, so full of power, his words are. If you can imagine like sitting in the seats in here and like walking away from this service being shocked, like how intense that would be. Um, That's how these people are feeling with Jesus coming and speaking to them. The Greek word, when it talks about power and authority in this moment, is exousia. Actually, I think I'm saying that right. I'm not a Greek person, uh, which means delegated power. Power delegated by God in particular. He teaches with spiritual power given to him by God, these people are saying. It's not merely inspirational or insightful, but his words really do something in the world. When Jesus speaks, things happen, is what they're saying. And the really cool thing about this text and what Mark is teaching us in this moment is he gives us uh, this incredible moment where Jesus does his first big moment of power in ministry, and it doesn't start with an exorcism. What does it start with? What's the first amazing thing he does? He teaches. And Mark's trying to tell us is that Jesus' words have power What he is teaching is just as powerful as what he is doing, and that those two things aren't separate, that what Jesus teaches, what Jesus says, goes out into the world and has power all its own. So the next thing he does is he heals this man with an unclean spirit, with a demon. And the direct translation, which I think is really helpful, is he heals a man in an unclean spirit. If you were at the Mark class, we talked about this. It's as though, when you translate it that way, this man's personality and entire life has been swallowed whole by this demon. And with a word, Jesus speaks and the demon is cast out and the man is healed. Jesus is showing us the power of his teaching, the power of his word. The text links his word and his work. They are equally powerful and they are inseparable. They they go together. They're intertwined in his life. Jesus' words work in the world and they have power. They leave his mouth and the world is different. Now, I want to say some important things about this. Firstly, that the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. That's when you say amen, Jenny. I'm quoting scripture. It's always good when I'm quoting scripture. Your knowledge of praying of and reading the scriptures is doing more in your life than you can ever know. The little scriptures, the little stories you read to your children are doing more in them than you can know. And you probably don't see much fruit of it in them if you're anything like my children. It's doing more than you know. It's the power of Jesus planted like tiny seeds in your mind and in your soul that may not show fruit immediately, but it will. I think this is why the enemy, more than anything else in our lives, tries to distract us from being people of the Bible, people who read the Bible. I wish I could tell you the amount of times I sit across from people and they're like, I just have so much trouble like finding the time to read my Bible. And I don't say this because I'm not a weirdo, but I'm like, I sit across from them and I'm like, yeah, that's what the enemy wants. The enemy knows how powerful the scriptures are. Sometimes I do say that, actually, now that I'm remembering. I probably do every time. I don't know. 
changed the script in my head. But the enemy doesn't want you to read your Bible. And so there's going to be tiny things like your alarm doesn't go off and little things in your life where you get distracted and there isn't the time and so you don't do it. And this is not me telling you, you know, like, so go home and read your Bibles. What I'm telling you is that there, if you want to, to be in the power of Jesus and have, that, uh, have your life altered by him, spending time with him in his text is the way that happens. It's the way that that power begins to work in your life and in your heart and out into the world. Secondly, if you belong to Jesus, your words have delegated power. Your words have authority. Mark chapter 6 tells us, Then Jesus went about among the villages teaching, and then he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. That's not just true of Jesus' disciples. That's true of anyone who has the Holy Spirit. That's true of us as his disciples as well. And this is important for us to know because so much good can come from your words and so much evil can come from your words and my words. So much healing and so much pain can come from the things that we say. And if, friends, we really believed how much power came out of our words, how would what we say in life be different? How would what you say to your children every day be different? Or your spouse? Or your friends? Or your parents? or your enemies, the people who you feel are against you? How would your words change if you believed you had power in them? James chapter three, which if you grew up in youth group, you've heard a thousand times. But I'm gonna read it to you again because it's very important. But no one can tame the tongue, a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless the Lord and with it we curse people made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes a blessing and a curse. My brothers and sisters, James says, this ought not to be so. You may be thinking, Ginny, this is great, great news that my words have power and authority, but I've been praying for something or some things, and it's not like when Jesus says, be silent, and immediately things happen. Um, And, you know, why don't my words have the immediacy of Jesus? Great question. Firstly, I think because you are not Jesus, number one. But secondly is sometimes they will. Sometimes when you pray for something, the Spirit will move through you with the immediacy of Jesus in this moment, in this text. Keep praying for things that need immediate work, immediate healing, immediate insight. Keep praying for those things. But thirdly, I will say, even Jesus said a couple chapters after this, he says, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? It's like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. And yet when it's sown up, it grows up to become the greatest of all shrubs and puts forth large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Those are your words. Those are, mommy, those are your prayers. They are seeds being planted in the ground, tiny little seeds. Do you see the fruit immediately? Anyone ever planted anything? You just, Jesus has a parable about this too. You just stick it in the earth and then you're just, you know? That's what our prayers and our words are like. They're seeds. And we come alongside them with the belief 
that Jesus will do the work of growing them into something. And not just something, something that grows up so big that it feeds the world around us, right? The power of your words is like tiny, powerful seeds that grow up into world-changing things. One of my favorite images in the Old Testament um, is a part that we a lot of times skip over, but it's in the, the priestly garments, the things that the priests are supposed to wear in the temple. And one of the things it says is along the bottom of their garments will be pomegranates. And they don't mean like the real fruit pomegranates. They mean like little thread balls, basically. And, um, and, but they call them pomegranates because it's supposed to have a symbolic meaning or else they would have just said, like, make sure there's beautiful pom-poms around the bottom of the priest's garments. That's not what it says. It says pomegranates. And the reason there's pomegranates around the bottom uh, of the priestly garments is because, you all know what a pomegranate's like? When you open it, what is there? Seeds. The fruit is the seeds. And the seeds are the fruit. That's what your life is meant to be like. As a priestly nation, all of us have that on us. These pomegranates, that's what our life and our words are like. Every bit of fruit is seeds. As a Christian, every single one of your words is a seed. What is it growing? What is the fruit of your life growing? So when we talk about the Spirit, the power of the Spirit, as we see in this text, <clears throat> it's also important to acknowledge the power of the enemy, the power of evil. Um, and it's like not fun to talk about. It's not like easy for me to talk about it either. I know it may seem like it because I've been up here a couple weeks and been like, let's talk about demons, but it's actually very hard. And I like sit at my desk all week and I'm like, Lord, please help me. Uh, help me do this well and right. Um, but it's really important to talk about because when we limit our view of evil in the world, I really believe we are also limiting the power of God in our world and in us and in our view of who God is. Because if we, if we don't believe that there is like an active thing that's working against us and that it has power, we can't acknowledge that God is so much more powerful than that thing and has already overcome it. Does that make sense? It can feel scary, and I know sometimes people are like, if you call something evil, if you call it demonic, then you're giving it power. It already has power. You can't give it more power. What you can do is proclaim God's power over that thing and say, Jesus has already won this thing. So that's the power. That's the only power you can give to it is the power of Jesus over it. Amen? You got it? Are we along on the same page? This is not an invitation, I will say, to see demons, demons everywhere. I know some of you are like, I don't want to start like praying against demons at every, you know, I have my, some dear family of mine will uh, go to the thrift store and anything they buy, they like take out to the trunk of their car and they're like, demons out, because they don't know like wh who has owned it before and if they were like witches or something. I'm not telling you to do that. Don't worry. Don't see demons everywhere. But if there is a moment where something feels different, it's okay to acknowledge that, and it's okay to call the power of God over it. Here's the thing about us and the Western world. This moment is a moment to realize how Western we truly are and how much we have domesticated the spiritual realm and tamed it for our comfort and for our own power and thus limited the, spirit in our, the power of the Spirit in our lives. 
In the West, we don't need God's power because we are powerful. We have control over most things in our lives. And the most often when I feel like things are not going well or God's not on my side and what, what I hear from other people as well is when we start to lose control. We start to wonder if God is really there, if God's on our side. Whereas in the rest of the world, you being out of control of your life is very normal. God is sovereign. We just have power, and so we forget how powerful God is. We don't notice our need for God's power in our life. So here's how I think about the demonic. You know, that's like big, scary word. Here's how I think about it. The demonic to me is when the negative reality of someone or something far outweighs the possibility of consequences. So a lot of times we think about, um, you know, I did this thing and now I'm reaping the negative consequences of it. Um, what's happening to this demon-possessed man far outweighs anything he could have done to deserve it. There's an evil, an injustice that exists outside the natural rules of error and consequence. This man couldn't have done anything to deserve this fate. So perhaps evil in our life looks like something outside of just the error and the consequence, like the consequences of sin. I think that we also go wrong when we say, this bad thing is happening in my life because of something I've done. It must be demonic. <laughs> and we don't, take, we don't repent. We don't take ownership of that thing. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about when it's not just error and consequence. It's far more than that. This man did nothing to deserve his fate. One of the ways we domesticate evil is with reason. Probably this person is in this place in their life because they did this terrible thing. Or probably this community is living in poverty because they messed up in these ways. We like to assign blame. It helps us understand things outside of the world of the power of the Spirit. But what if, friends, I'm offering to you today, what if we began to see injustice as evil? What if these situations we see as moments for repentance and moments of judgment when we call, we're like, that needs repentance, that person needs to confess. What if we began to see them as moments for deliverance? What if we began to call these things evil and then call the power of God over them instead of blaming? Here's an example. Uh, a friend of mine who goes to this church recently spent some time in Kenya <clears throat> and was invited to join by these people who lived in this place. We're going, um, he was invited to go pray for them in a place called Kibra, and it's, it's the largest slum in Africa. And these uh, people who live in this community invited this group of people to pray with them and for them. Um, Af our African brothers and sisters have so much to teach us about the Spirit of God. And um, in this moment, this moment of prayer with them and for them was one of those moments where they got to invite him and thus us as church community into this moment of seeing things for the way that they are. Uh, so this, this place, Kibra, that most of these residents live in extreme poverty. 12% of the population are living with HIV. Cases of assault and rape are common. There are few schools and most people cannot afford education for their children. Clean water is scarce, diseases are rampant. A great majority living in the slum lack access to basic services, including electricity, running water, and medical care. And yet this is their home. And these people who asked for prayer love this place and want God to come to it and to deliver them. So this group comes to pray with them and for them. 
and the leader of the prayer group is handing out this liturgy and um, assigning parts to the liturgy as well. And he comes to my friend, someone who goes to this church, and he hands him the paper and he said, you'll be doing the exorcism. <laughs> Which we, we're all waiting for that moment, really, right? I'm just kidding. <laughs> Maybe just me. So he's handed this liturgy and he says, you'll be doing the exorcism. But I want to read to you what the liturgy is for this exorcism. Okay? It'll be on the screen. So first, what he did is he sprinkled water on this land and on the people who were present. And he said, come spirit to this place. As we sprinkle this water, come spirit and redeem this place and make it a place of transformation, healing, and redemption to the people. Make it a safe place a place of community, a place of life, a place of hope. That which has been taken away from this community through murder, exploitation, negligence, abandonment, and abuse, we declare that this place will be a space of redemption, transformation, healing, and spaces of your presence. This space will bring life and hope for the people of this land. How's that for an exorcism? That exorcism is a prayer of love and deliverance for the people who love that place and who call it home. And this is why this is important, because Jesus' power that we're talking about, this power and authority that you and I are given through the Holy Spirit, the power that comes from Jesus is his love. That's what's powerful about it. Every single miracle, every healing, every exorcism was done because Jesus loved the person on the other side of it. It was never about him gaining glory for himself. It was about him giving away that which he held in his heart because he deeply loved the people of this world and came to us so that he could give away that which would heal us and free us. What made Jesus' different, teaching different from that of the scribes? It was fueled by love. It spoke love to them. They weren't hearing that from anyone else. That's why his teaching had authority and had power. Psalm 18 says, he delivered me because he delighted in me. That's how Jesus comes to us. He delivers us. He exercises that which in us is not of him because he loves us and wants us to be free. For Jesus, exorcisms are not about power, they're about love for the person who was swallowed up in death to be alive again. You are called, friends, to love God's world and God's people, and you are given authority by the Holy Spirit to reclaim spaces of death. Anybody with me? As I said two weeks ago about prayer, it's not that we're magic. The Holy Spirit isn't magic. Prayers aren't incantations. What they are is spaces we open up and offer God to work through whatever it looks like. And just like the prayer of the mustard seed, the prayers of deliverance that we pray for the people and the places around us, those are places that are, we're sowing seeds into the ground. Like keep praying for racial justice. You may not be seeing the fruit, but you are planting the seeds that will grow up into kingdom numbers. Numbers far greater than we could ever imagine. Fruit that we could never currently imagine as we pray for these things. 
Pray for injustice. It may feel like you're not doing anything, and I promise you, in the power of the Spirit, you are doing more than you could ever ask or imagine. Same thing for the people that you are praying for. Even if it seems like nothing is happening, no movements are being made, you are praying seeds into the world that have power and authority. When we talk about power in the world, when we say power, we are talking about bringing things to ourselves, right? Bringing glory to myself, bringing resources to myself, bringing acclaim to myself. When Jesus talks about power, when we're talking about power in the kingdom of God, it's always going outward. Jesus is powerful because he goes outward. He moves outward. He gives outward. That's what your power is in the spirit, is these like this pomegranate life that you're living is seeds that are constantly going out into the world and creating life. And when you don't see the fruit yet, you have hope because you're a Christian and you know these stories and you know that they will grow into fruit in your life and the life of the world around you. The beautiful thing about the three streams is that they ought to bring more life to the other. There's not like the, the Catholic moment and then the evangelical moment and then the charismatic moment in our services, right? They all go together. They're all meant to live and breathe together. For example, if we believe that the Holy Spirit gives us power and that there's power in our words, how powerful then when we all join together and say the Nicene Creed? It's not the point where we like put down the spirit and just do the the reciting, right? They're meant to go and live together. That's The liturgy is, is powerful and important when we speak in the power of the Spirit. So I want to end with a story and then an embodied practice together that we're all going to do. Um, I had a whole embodiment part of this sermon that I didn't get to, as Micah alluded to, but what I will say, um, that another uh, symptom of the Western world is we have divorced our brains from our bodies. And uh, when we come to church, a lot of times we like put our, our brain hats on and we're like, I'm gonna learn more about scripture and uh, my brain is gonna be the, most, the thing that is most activated. And what the church looks like in most of the world is not like that. Your body is actively engaged throughout the entire service because you are an embodied creature and God gives power not just to your words, but to your work just like Jesus did in this moment in scripture. So you can say things, I can say things, and it can have real power and meaning, how much more than when you actively work with your body to do those things. So we're gonna do this embodied practice together. I know you're all excited. Let me tell you the story though of where this comes from. So um, my friend who went and visited Kenya, he also told me, he was like, hey, you need to spend some time in the Anglican Kenyan Book of Common Prayer. So guess what I did all week? (laughs) That. I'm currently trying to figure out how to turn us into an Anglican Kenyan church because it's the greatest thing I've ever read. Um, So at the end of the Anglican uh, Kenyan church service, a blessing is done. And it's a blessing that's actually based on an ancient litany to curse their enemies. So um, there is this northern ethnic group in Kenya that was at war and enemies with this other ethnic group in the West. And so they had this, before they became Christians, this curse that they would curse on them um, as a way to like take all of their problems and send them to this, uh, these other people group. So they would say this part of the, the, the litany and then they would sweep their arms. So they'd go, all of our problems we send to the West. All of our difficulties we send to the West. All of the devil's works we send to the West. Now, here's the beautiful thing. 
When a group of these northern people became Christians, they learned of Jesus' love for his enemies, and this curse became a problem. <laughs> they knew they could no longer curse their enemies. But where to send all of these things? Where now do you send all of your problems and your difficulties and all the works of the devil? They learned of Galatians chapter 3.13, where Paul states that Christ has redeemed for us us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. So where do they send their curses now? To Jesus. Because he's the only place, the cross is the only place in heaven and on earth which can cope with all of our problems, all of our difficulties, and all of the devil's work. So the curse became a blessing. This person group that they used to be cursing their enemies, now they took that curse and made it a blessing, which isn't that exactly who Jesus is and what he does with us, what he can do with our words and our actions. So we're going to do this together, friends. If, you, if you're able, would you stand? <clears throat> I have the liturgy on the screen. So this is what it looks like. Um, I'm going to say the first part, and you're going to take your arms, and you're going to sweep them towards the cross, okay? And all three times, and then the last one we set on the risen Christ, you sweep your arms towards heaven. Got it? I watched a video of a church from Africa doing this and a church from Illinois doing this, and it was very different. <laughs> That's all I'll say, but be more like the church in Africa. We're going to do it twice because it's new and we're learning, Okay. So let's, let's do it the first time. All our problems we send to the cross of Christ. All our difficulties we send to the cross of Christ. All the devil's works we send to the cross of Christ. All our hopes we set on the risen Christ. Amen. Amen. How'd you do? Can you do better? Let's try again. All our problems we set on the cross of Christ. All our difficulties we send to the cross of Christ. All the devil's works we send to the cross of Christ. All our hopes we set on the risen Christ. Amen. Thank you, Anglican Kenyans. Amen. Amen. We'll conclude our service today um, by continuing in our practice of praying over different vocations as part of our season of Epiphany. Today we're going to be praying for healthcare workers. So if you are a healthcare worker, can you raise your hand and those around us will reach out and pray for you. So let's pray together. Father God, we pray for those who work in the healthcare industry. We pray for those who work in hospitals and private practices our EMS workers, our chemists, pharmacists, doctors, nurses, administrators, mental health workers, and specialists. We pray for them now. We ask you, God, to provide them with wisdom as they serve you and their communities with their service. May they always treat patients with respect and dignity, always remembering the call to love our neighbors as ourselves. May you give them discernment and clarity when they are diagnosing and treating their patients. May the love that you have shown these healthcare workers be reflected in them to their patients. We pray, God, that you would sustain them through the secondary trauma that can come with seeing others suffer and carrying those burdens. 
We pray that they would feel supported and cared for as they process this grief. Provide them with peace and space to care for themselves in order to maintain a healthy frame of mind to care for others. Help our health care workers to be transformative agents in this city. May they bring healing to their patients and reflect the love of Christ to those entrusted to their care. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now go in peace to love and to serve the Lord.